Welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. My name is Frank. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. We're in the middle of our series on 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Uh, So if you would open in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, that would be great. And while you're doing that, I'd like to take a moment to sort of talk to our teens and our young adults, uh, our young children as well. I've done a series with the youth group several times where students ask me questions about whatever and I answer them and each time we do that series I almost always get a question about how do I follow a sermon? Sometimes Dave and Frank, you guys just talk and I don't get what you're saying and how do I, how do I follow a sermon? And so when we come to the church, come to church and we come to a sermon, we're usually looking for the gospel, which basically means that we're looking for how scripture highlights our sin, and how it highlights Christ doing something about that sin on our behalf. And so this morning, that's the big picture that we want to be listening for, Uh, especially for you young children and for you teens. You're looking for how does this passage highlight sin and how does the gospel in Christ Jesus address it? So as we dive into 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul gives us a general view of this and then a specific view of this. So general and then specific, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So uh, let's turn our attention to God's Word. Um, We'll be reading the whole chapter. It is lengthy, and we have a lot to talk about, so I will talk very quickly. Please uh, buckle up and strap in. um, Follow along as you can. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithful, faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid reverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, 
set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know, they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, we have many distractions, many different competing cares, a lot of things that are going to keep our focus and our attention away from you. And Lord, your word calls us to pay attention to pay attention and to focus not only because you have called us to a holy calling, but because we are soldiers in your army and we need to stand guard. And Lord, as we stand guard, uh, would you give us wisdom to see uh, how we might not quarrel and how we might not be quarrelsome people. And through it all, Lord, we ask that we would see your son, that we would see Jesus, that we would see the gospel giving us the means by which we might change. And so, Lord, change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us now this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want to start by taking us back to a time when I actually had time to go to Six Flags and to ride roller coasters all day. Um, I was still in college at the time. I was working as, as a camp counselor at Nerd Camp, and all of my best stories come from Nerd Camp, as many of you know. And so on my day off... Uh, during the summer, I went with some friends to Six Flags, New Jersey, where there in that amusement park resides the tallest and fastest roller coaster since it has been dethroned by some roller coaster in like Dubai or something like that. But at the time, it was the tallest and fastest roller coaster in the world, standing 456 feet tall and launching riders from zero to 128 miles an hour in 3.5 seconds. Now, when you get onto this ride after hearing probably what was a three-hour wait because it's a very popular ride, you just hear people screaming like every minute or so for three hours, right? And when you get up there, especially if you're sitting in the front seat, the operators g give you some advice when you get into this little tiny car that you're going to get launched out. They say, um, one piece of general advice and two specific pieces of spe specific advice. The general advice is to sit back, relax, enjoy the ride. The second advice is to keep your head firmly planted on the seat back and to keep your mouth closed. I unfortunately did not follow either, su either suggestion, and you can imagine what happened upon launch. My head gets launched directly into my seat back, giving me a raging headache for the rest of the day. And the second is, I ended up with a very near miss to a bug being launched down my throat at 128 miles an hour. Because I, like everybody else for the last three hours, have been opening my mouth and screaming because it's a terrifying thing to be launched at 128 miles an hour in three and a half seconds. Thankfully, the bug, instead of catching me in my open, gaping mouth, caught me on the neck where it felt like I had been cut. And I was like, oh my gosh, am I bleeding? Ah. So 
thankfully, I didn't take it down the throat. That would have been terrible. I can't even imagine the pain that I would have been in. Now, these general pieces of advice and specific advice that I received at Six Flags parallel what we get here in 2 Timothy 2. Not so much the sit back and relax uh, while you keep your mouth shut, but advice that points us to a general way of life as a Christian with a specific, invi- a specific piece that instructs us to resist our natural temptation to open our mouths. So the keep your mouth shut does in fact apply. Unless you think this applies to only officers, since we've been talking about officers a lot, and this is a, a, a letter written to Timothy who is going to be a leader in the early church, lest you think that all of you who are not officers can just sort of sit back, relax, and just ignore the rest of the sermon. Remember that Paul talks directly to the congregation starting in verse 14. And also, the early church saw this letter not only to, uh, as a personal one to Timothy, but to the wider church as well. And if all of that weren't enough, Peter calls the church, meaning all Christians, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of his own possession, meaning God's possession, and which also means that we are all called to be a royal priesthood, ambassadors for Christ. And so each of us has that holy, holy calling to sort of embody Christ and to sort of live a life that befits Christ, and not just the elders and deacons. This applies to everyone even you children and teens. You have a holy calling even now in your youth. And we're, um, we're to be as the ESV heading state, good soldiers and workers approved by God. So let's pay close, close attention to the last words of Paul, our spiritual mentor and our forerunner and what he has for us. So let's start with that general advice. Basically, it's pretty simple. Paul wants Timothy to live as befits a follower of Christ. And that's rooted in the fact that Timothy's primary identity is that he belongs to Jesus. Now, that seems pretty straightforward. Timothy's a Christian. He should live like a Christian. And this would be verses 1 through 13. And here are all that we said last week about making the gospel precious and making it the foundation for our lives. All of that still applies. And Paul roots his exhortations in the Gospels in verses 8 to 13. But let's look at what Paul wants Timothy to do. First, three things, what he wants him to do. First, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's verse 1. Basically, this is what last week was all about. Is the gospel precious in our lives? It's not only the goal, but also the means by which we live our lives. We taste the grace of Jesus towards us as we extend the same grace to those who sin against us. So, be strengthened by the gospel. Two, entrust to faithful men what you have heard. That's verse two. Just as Paul has spent a lot of time and effort raising up Timothy, Timothy is to turn around and do the same for the next generation. And so this gospel isn't just for us. This gospel is also for our children and for their children. Just as it was a heritage for Timothy from his grandmother Lois and mother Eunice, as we found out in chapter 1. So the gospel is really too precious to keep to ourselves. It's far too precious to be lost simply through the passage of time if we don't pass it down. 
And so Timothy is to care not only about himself and his own faith, but also the faith of children, of teens, and of young adults. They were all of you adults, older adults, at one time. And three, we are to share in suffering, which is verse three. Again, we want to be like Jesus, and the Jesus that we know was a suffering servant. And so that's what what Paul wants Timothy to do. But what about the how? How is Timothy to do these things? How is he supposed to live as befits a follower of Christ? And that's the three metaphors we get in verses 4 to 6. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. So first, the soldier. The soldier emphasizes focus. He doesn't get wrapped up in other things, which isn't to say that Christians shouldn't be involved in the secular world. That goes without saying, since we're called to be in the world but not of it, but yet we often have to choose between good things and what is best and what is godly. And so, Christian, we are called to be focused on the work that God has for us to do. What about the athlete? The athlete emphasizes faithfulness and righteousness. While we're freed from the law's demands to produce righteousness, we are still called to do what is right before God as described in the law. So the third use of the law, there are three uses of the law. The third use is to teach us what is pleasing to God, and all of that is um, meant to help us live a life that befits a follower of Christ. And just, as we're sa- just because we're saved and can't out-sin the blood of Jesus doesn't mean that we get to sin as if it were nothing. So Christian, it seems pretty simple. You need to live righteously. You are called to live righteously. That seems sort of obvious, but it's not always obvious um, that we are called to live righteously. And then the farmer emphasizes diligence and consistency. There aren't breaks for the farmer or for the Christian. Each and every day we have to get up and work out our faith in fear and trembling. And Ephesians 5 calls us to look carefully how we walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And so we really have to sort of stack good days. We really want to sort of be consistent and diligent in pursuing Christ and being righteous and repenting. And so really... When we take all three metaphors together, we are to focus on Jesus, to live like Jesus in righteousness and faithfulness to the gospel, to be consistent, faithful, and enduring in our walk with the Lord. In short, we're supposed to look like Jesus. Surprise! Christians are supposed to look like the one whom they're named after. But though we know that we're to be about Jesus— and the next generation, and to make the gospel precious through focus, faith, and diligence, we still don't know why. We know the what and the how, but the why. Why do we do this? Why do we strive after the Lord with so much? Why do we put so much effort in being faithful if we have already been saved? What is the purpose and drive for all this hard work that we're to um, walk in? We're not just to walk because we're supposed to walk, but there is a purpose to it. And that's right there in verse 10. We endure everything for the sake of the elect, not because their salvation depends on us, but because it is through our faithful labor and ministry and witness to the gospel that many of the elect are saved. 
There, is, there are very few things in life that are more meaningful than leading somebody else to faith in Christ Jesus. It's an amazing thing. One that I've had very few opportunities to do to my chagrin. But yet when it happens, it's an amazing thing. And there are often times where we would say we would do a lot for the sake of just one to be saved. Why? Because it is so meaningful that one be saved. We are moving, we are seeing some, at least one person move from eternal death to eternal life. It makes everything worth it. So friends, this is what it means to have a Jesus perspective. That we would see the world the same way that he does. That we would see it with faithfulness, with focus, with righteousness, with diligence, with confidence for the sake of saving sinners. That that our hearts would break over sin, but that we don't want to argue with those sinners, but rather that we would love them with grace, meeting them in the midst of their sin before their repentance, that they might see Jesus in us. It is our hope through our focus, faithfulness, and diligence, through our devotion to the gospel of Christ Jesus, that some, not all, but some, would come to faith and a saving knowledge of him. That's why we do it. Jesus was in the business not of pointing out sin, but in reclaiming sinners and saving them. That was his overriding priority, and it should be ours as well. Which brings us to the specific advice that parallels the advice I got on the King Ka, which is that big giant roller coaster. Keep our mouths shut, and more specifically from the text, don't quarrel. And both pieces of advice go against our, most of our gut instincts. When you're strapped into what amounts to a catapult and you start going, your first instinct is to scream, which opens you up to eating a big fat bug, which both hurts and is just gross. But when we're confronted by people that we think are wrong, people that come at us with hostility and with hatred, our gut instincts is to open our mouths and to defend what is true and what is right, to defend ourselves and to set them straight but usually that ends up just in an argument where everyone is just more entrenched in the positions that they started in, which is the opposite of what we want to happen. And so this would be verses 14 to 26, what the ESV labels a worker approved by God. But really, it's a section that talks about how a worker that is approved by God relates to others. There are no less than four times that Paul talks about avoiding quarrels with others. Again and again, Paul harps on the way in which we speak to one another. The emphasis calls back to the book of James' emphasis on the power of the tongue. Listen to James 3, verses 5 and 6. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. This tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. And isn't it interesting that of all the specific things that Paul could instruct Timothy in, the way in which he engages with others through words is the first specific thing that we get in this letter. Listen again to how Paul hammers home the importance of our words in this section, starting in verse 14. 
reminding them of these things and charged them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who, does not, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that this resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the Lord the name who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their sentences come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so Paul is pointing out to Timothy and to us that being a Christian has its own set of sin patterns. When we become Christians, Satan doesn't just give up. He doesn't say, well, he's a Christian now, oh well. He is, in fact, more pleased to come after us. Why? Because we're not his anymore. He's just as happy for us to be self-righteous, condescending, and quarrelsome as he is for us to be debauched and wild. Either way, sin flourishes in us. And so we must be on guard against the devil in our lives. And since we have the truth with a capital T, and since we can see sin more clearly through the power of the Holy Spirit, we in fact do have a perspective on life that others don't. We can actually see some, some uh, not all, things better because we have Jesus. And that truth, that truth that we don't have as much of a veil over our eyes can breed self-righteousness and pride. It can breed a sense of superiority because we can see and they, others can't. And that's just a half a step to wanting and needing everyone around us to know that we're different, that we're better, and that we're right. And all of this adds up to an almost natural bent to quarreling, to arguing over minor, secondary, or foolish things. Thus, the temptation is the same on the roller coaster as it is in life, to open our mouths when we really shouldn't. Because most of the time, it's not right for us to argue over stuff. Did you see the the bit about Hymenaeus and Philetus? They're clearly saying incorrect things, that the ultimate resurrection has already happened, which is absolutely not true. It's even damaging the faith of some in the church. 
But instead of standing up to false doctrine and setting them straight, Paul simply tells them to avoid irreverent babble and to trust in the foundation of God that stands regardless of what people says, what people say. Paul is essentially saying that God will win who he wants to win and that everyone will, that is in his will will end up repenting, which is great because that emphasizes that it's not up to us to get people to repent or even to change their minds. Our job is to faithfully preach the gospel and then to leave the rest to the Lord. And Paul is really clear here. We are to be a people that does not quarrel. But that's exactly what we do a lot of the time. Historically speaking, in America, quarreling culture is not a recent development. We've been fighting and arguing about things for a long, long time. Just as Timothy has a heritage of faith from his grandmother and mother, we, in America, have a heritage of quarreling. We've fought about stuff for as long as this nation has been in existence. We fought about slavery back around the Civil War, literally fighting. We fought about Vietnam. We fought about racial inequality, sexuality, gender identity, and gender roles, abortion, abuse of all kinds, and politics, just to name a few. And the church has fought about things as well across history. We fought over music, a lot over music. We fought over minor theological points. We fought over masks more recently and style. We fought over whether or not we ought to be in a building or not. And so that doesn't really make us any better than the secular world when it comes to quarreling, if at all. And sure, we fought over important doctrinal issues, but those fights often are few and far between. Most of the time, we're not fighting for the gospel itself and its purity, but for secondary doctrines that we think that what we think we have made sort of core issues, we've elevated secondary issues to the gospel depends on this. And that's just not the case. And so what has all that arguing done for us? What good has it brought? Have we actually changed people through our arguing? More often than not, we damage our reputation when we argue. That hearers are ruined as verse 14 puts it. Not only the people that we're discussing and arguing with, but also those who are witnessing our arguments. Do we display Christ as we argue? Do we display a, a, a gospel of patience and of gentleness, of grace, as we argue? I know for me, that's a clear and definitive no. I don't do that. And this is the dishonorable stuff that we need to cleanse ourselves from, that we might be set apart as holy. And what we don't often realize is that when we quarrel, when we are consumed for anger for our opponents, when we, in fact, view people on the other side of our quarrel as opponents, we cease to be useful to the Lord because we cease to be on mission with him. You see, the Lord doesn't view our people on the other side of the aisle, on the other side of the argument, as opponents. He views them as sinners in need of a Savior. He loves them, and he goes to them while they're still sinners, in the midst of their sin, while they're still wrong. 
before they have changed. And as we look at the descriptions in verses 22 to 26, do we see the stereotypical hot-headed Christian that has come to dominate online discourse, the news, and the church? And they're not all out there. Some of them are right here in this church. And I was and almost certainly am still one of them. I was a lot more hot-headed when I was in my 20s. I'm still hot-headed sometimes. I've definitely got a temper, and I like being right. I think I'm pretty smart. I have credentials to prove it. And I think it just feeds into this idea that people are just better off if they just listen to me. And so I open my mouth to correct people and to argue with them. And some of that is righteous and part of my call to shepherd you all towards righteousness. But quite a lot of it, I dare say most of it, is just me showing off. Do you see the youthful passions in verse 22? That the, do you see the youthful passions that verse 22 talks about of wanting to be right, to care about the minor details? But I can't stay like that. I can't stay hot-headed and fighting over every little thing. I can't remain the same old quarrelsome Frank. And so over my sabbatical, I started talking to a Christian counselor to get at the root of my bad habits, to see the specific hurts and sins that I endured and perpetuated so that I can apply the gospel specifically to my life that I might change. And do you know what I found? I found that I often don't feel like I'm good enough that I'm terrified of being found out as less than. That insecurity festers deep in my heart, and so I'm not gracious to others. I, I feel this overwhelming need to put others down so I can feel good. And so I quarrel because I most of the time can win. But that's not about Christ. I'm not fighting because of Christ. I'm fighting because of me. I'm not willing to endure injustice as a witness to Christ. I'm not willing that, to endure evil patiently as our passage tells us. I'm not willing to embody Christ to others. And so I come after people, not to correct them for righteousness' sake, but to be proven right. But the gospel, thankfully, is slowly but surely transforming me. It's not a sort of catch-all that we just sort of slap onto my sin, but rather it speaks specifically to who I am. It tells me that my insecurity is addressed in the gospel, that the Lord knows me to my deepest core and still loves me and delights in me, that I've been made worthy by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that process of digging in deep with a sinner like me, of coming alongside to find out how I need to hear the gospel applied specifically to me is what Paul envisions here. When I meet people, I'm not just dealing with a jumble of political positions and doctrines and misconceptions, but rather I'm dealing with a person who has a story just like me, has insecurities just like me and who has issues just like me. And that person needs the gospel like I do. That person needs a gospel advocate to encourage her, him or her to righteousness, faith, love, and peace. That 
person needs someone to come at them. Uh, that person needs someone to come at them, but to, not to come at them, but to come with them to a throne of grace. That person needs someone to teach them, to disciple them, to endure their mistakes and sinfulness with gentleness. Perhaps like with me, God might grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, the truth that Jesus has come to die for my sins, to raise me in newness of life and to speak directly to my deepest longings of my soul. I didn't need somebody to argue with me about the aspects of my life that were wrong. I needed somebody to preach the gospel to me, to walk with me in grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit shine light on the root of my issues. To be patient with me, not to fight with me, but to love me. And as we wrap up, we're called to live lives that are fitting for followers of Christ. We are to be rooted and grounded in the gospel, living in f- with focus, faithfulness, diligence, and consistency. We're to step into suffering as Christ did. And that general exhortation leads us to the specific exhortation to avoid quarrels. Instead of arguing and battling with the culture and with those around us, we are to reflect Christ, who patiently endured evil, even extreme evil, all the way to the cross for our sake, that we might receive repentance and have our eyes opened. This chapter is a chapter calling us to go to sinners right where they are, to lovingly learn where they desperately need the gospel applied to their lives and to faithfully preach the gospel with focus, with faithfulness, with diligence, and with consistency. We do all of that while praying for them that the Lord might grant them repentance, that they might be saved from Satan and their sin. And why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for you and for me through his life, death, and resurrection. Friends, we serve a gospel that tells us that we can't change ourselves because we're dead in our transgressions. And dead people don't do anything. And so why should we expect anyone to change? That our, our arguments are so clever and so unwaveringly and obviously true that they would be argued into the kingdom, that they would be argued into life? No. We believe in a gospel that says that we need a change giver, that we need a life giver. And without him, we can do nothing. And we should have that expectation that if we want to change people, If we want to change this world, in fact, we need to give them the change giver. Not through arguments and through quarrels, but through a picture of a suffering servant that we see on the cross. That we might exercise the gospel in our lives towards others. Not against them. And so let us be a people of peace, for we serve the Prince of Peace. Let us be a people that show love because he is truly, in fact, the lover of our souls. And let us not quarrel because the Lord never quarreled with us. He always met us right where we are in the midst of our sin, saying, I understand that you're sinful. I understand that you're broken. I understand that you're hurting. Let us see how the gospel applies to that specific hurt to that specific sin that you might see how good and gracious I am. Come, taste and see 
that I am good. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as people who often quarrel. People that quarrel in the morning with our children, people who quarrel on the way to church, people who quarrel in the marketplace, people who quarrel online, people who quarrel with our neighbors. We like to argue, not because we like to fight, but because we like to be right, because we are prideful people. Lord, would you remind us that that's not what we need, that we need people to come alongside of us, to patiently endure our evil, to endure our mistakes, to endure our hurts, our hardships, that we might see Jesus. Lord, make us a people of peace. Make us a people that look like you, that look like your son, that we would be willing to step into suffering, to step into hardship, to step into uh, wrongness, to step into injustice for the sake of sinners who are deep in their sin. For, Lord, that is what you did. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us hearts that love as you love. In short, Lord, make us more like you, we pray. It's in his name that we lift all these things up. Amen.